Well, our sermon text for this morning is coming from Galatians chapter 6 and verses 1 through 10. Galatians chapter 6 and verses 1 through 10. Remember, last time I was here preaching, uh, we looked at verses 1 through 5, which dealt with how we are to live together as sinners saved by grace, um, bearing and sharing in one another's burdens, as the heading there from the New King James translation says. And as we move on, Paul's continuing with that theme. And so that's what we're going to look at in verses 6 through 10. And uh, as you see, the title of my message is Doing Good Towards the Household of Faith. But again, for context, we're going to pick it up at verse 1. Hear now the word of our God. Paul writes, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another, for each one shall bear his own load. And then our text for today. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all especially to those who are of the household of faith. Thus far for the reading of God's holy and inspired word. May he bless it to us. Well, again, as we turn our attention back to the book of Galatians this morning, I'll remind you that uh, what we're examining here is uh, the very end of the book where Paul is now giving some final advice and various admonitions to the Galatian Christians. Again, as I mentioned before, we read the scripture. Uh, Last time we were in Galatians, back when we examined the first five verses of chapter 6, we saw that Paul was giving them instructions on how to live together as a community of sinners saved by grace. Uh, Recall, he gave them instructions for how they are to care for those who are going astray, that we are to restore those who have been overcome by a sin in a spirit of gentleness. And we are to likewise care for one another in general, as we saw, by bearing one another's burdens. While likewise watching over our own walk in a spirit of humility and gratitude towards God. Uh, This is Paul's vision for how we are to function as a community of sinners saved by grace. And if you think about it, it makes sense that he ends his epistle in this way. 
because the self-righteous Judaizers, whom he's been arguing against throughout this book, refuse to see themselves as sinners saved by grace, or sinners in need of grace, more specifically. You see, while the self-righteous may wink at the concept that they are sinners in need of grace, they simply don't understand how thoroughgoing their sin is and how thoroughgoing their need for grace is, uh, which is why they typically do not comprehend the gospel in all of its fullness. And so this misapprehension also goes on to warp their understanding of what Christian fellowship is all about and of what Christian fellowship should look like. And so again, after defending the doctrines of grace, Paul is now reinforcing here what it looks like to live together as sinners who've been saved by grace. And Paul is uh, continuing with that theme here in verses 6 through 10. He's showing us in this text how we are to live Again, not only as sinners saved by grace, but also as sinners who've now been knit together into the family of God. As sinners who've been brought together under one roof, under one household, so to speak. He's teaching us here that because Christ has justified us freely and knit us together as the family of God, that we should therefore be generous in our giving to the church while also bearing the fruit of the Spirit towards one another. And so as we examine this text under this theme this morning, uh, we are going to consider just two things. Just two things. First, we will consider how we are to give material support to the ministry of the church. Then second, we will consider how we are, again, called to bear spiritual fruit towards one another, while corporately being committed to crucifying the works of the flesh together. And again, as we will see, Paul's admonition here is about building us up together as the family of God, as the household of God. And so first then, let's examine how we are to support the ministry of the church. And we see that laid out right there in verse 6. Paul says there, let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Now, this is one of those texts that can be a bit awkward to preach on um, because it can come across as a bit patronizing to the listeners. Uh, It makes us think of the prosperity preachers and the other hucksters that are out there who will say things like, Tithe into my ministry and you'll have it restored to you tenfold. Uh, You see, preaching on giving and preaching on tithing has a rather negative connotation to it in our culture, doesn't it? And sometimes that's for very good reason. And yet, the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write this. And so it's certainly good and right to preach on this subject And to be reminded of it at times. And as we're going to see, uh, this text is fundamentally about uh, the broad overall concept of supporting the institution of the church. Because we value the ministry of the church. Especially the teaching ministry of the church. 
And so, as they say, we need to literally put our money where our mouth is, according to Paul, in giving sacrificially to the church. So this is a a matter of practical Christian living here, uh, being applied to our life together as the body of Christ. Now, when Paul says here, let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches, uh, this is an admonition given to the members of the church who sit under the preaching of the word of God. And so just as a quick side note, uh, this text does demonstrate to us that very early on in the uh, life of the early church, that there were those who were being ordained and set apart for the ministry of teaching as a full-time vocation, ideally. Uh, This is something that Paul also refers to towards the end of his ministry in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17. Uh, There he also writes, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor or work in the word and doctrine. And so Paul here, in our text about a decade earlier from when he said that, is urging a similar form of honor given to teaching elders in the form of material compensation. This is what he means when he says to share in all good things. In the context there, thinking of uh, just the economy at the time and life at the time, all good things there probably includes things like food and and clothing, and, and, and of course money, but it can also, as we're going to see, include things like prayer, praying for the pastor, and encouraging him, which sometimes that's something that pastors need even more. And once again, this seems to be urged upon the church in Galatia here in response to the popularity of the Judaizers. In other words, Paul is admonishing them to support orthodox preachers of the gospel over and against the allure of all the false teachers that were in their midst that had been leading them astray. That really seems to be the emphasis there when Paul refers to those who are taught the word. You see the term that is used there for word, which is logos in the Greek, um, it can refer to the word of God in general, Uh, But it also tends to have the connotation of a body of teaching or of a body of doctrine. So think of things like creeds and confessions and other works of theology. And so again, in seeking to turn the Galatians away from uh, the heresy of the Judaizers, Paul is now admonishing them to put their support behind those who rightly divide the word of truth, or those who teach orthodox doctrine, who teach the logos, who teach the word, even if they aren't as impressive as those Judaizers were. You see, sometimes I think we tend to picture legalistic teachers like the Pharisees and like the Judaizers as being these staunch, austere, spiritual killjoys. Uh, the types of individuals you wouldn't want to spend much time with. I uh, think maybe of the panel at the end of Footloose, right? Um, that's kind of the mentality of what I think a lot of people think of with, with legalistic teachers and how they can be. And in some cases, that's, that's definitely true. However, most of the time, 
legalistic teachers and false teachers and gurus of various types and stripes are actually relatively charismatic and quite likable as individuals. After all, if you can teach me to live in such a way that I will be guaranteed all sorts of blessings in my life, if you can lead me into a lifestyle that implies at a certain level that I can earn blessings from God for myself and for my family based on my obedience, um, well, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Sign me up. Show me the way. And you see, often legalists and other false teachers do have this aura of success around them. They have this aura of having it all together. And we like that. That's appealing to the natural man, isn't it? They also tend to be very articulate, very smooth in their speech. For example, it was said of men in the history of the church, heretics like Arius and Arminius. It's said that they were of the type of personality that they could just draw people in. Uh, They were even, in fact, very musically talented. Uh, Both of those men, Arius and Arminius, uh, wrote a lot of music to promote their heresy. And so, again, people got drawn in. I want to follow this this talented individual. Of course, those things are not wrong, but that seems to be a tool the devil uses. It's, It's all form over substance. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 6, Uh, Paul defends himself from another set of false teachers by saying, even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge or in doctrine. You see, when you read chapters 10 and 11 from 2 Corinthians, you get the impression that the false teachers that Paul was responding to in Corinth were rather impressive orators. They were trained in rhetoric. They were persuasive in their speech which is why they were appealing to the Corinthians in that case. And it's why they were apparently critical of Paul for not being as skilled and as impressive as those men were. And we can assume that the Judaizers would have had a very similar appeal to the Galatians. They would have been men very educated and trained in the rabbinic schools and associated organizations. But Paul here, he admonishes the Galatian Christians uh, to give material support to pastors and teachers, uh, not based on their skill or on their charisma, though those things are, of course, not bad, but again, based upon the orthodoxy of their ministries. Those who teach the Word, those who preach the Gospel in all of its purity and who minister Christ to our souls... They are to be supported, and those who pervert it are to be ignored, marked, and avoided. And while this may not seem to be entirely relevant to us in our day, um, after all, the church has continuously responded to heresy for the last 2,000 years, and we as a denomination put men through examinations to make sure we're not ordaining heretics as far as we can tell, uh, right? We did that in this, this past week, and many of us are here because we want to be in a church uh, that, that guards the preaching in that way. Um, yet, the general issue that Paul is addressing here is always an ever-present danger. We can still tend to devalue uh, the preaching of the gospel Uh, while being distracted by 
false teaching and false teachers who seem larger than life. Maybe we don't even know that that's what they are, especially in our day of of, of digital communication. Uh, These teachers can literally find us. We don't have to go looking for them. And again, um, the other issue here is that, that it's often reflected in the church by a lack of dedicated support for the ministry of the church when people are going astray. Now, hear me as as I address these issues. um, I say this in light of, again, the church in general, uh, not necessarily in light of this church, but thinking of the issue of giving, something that we need to be dedicated to. Um, It's a simple fact that many Christians in America fail to support their local congregation in an adequate way. For example, I did some research. Recent surveys indicate that only about 10 to 25% of churchgoers in America tithe. Uh, In fact, not too long ago, it was in 2021, uh, the Christian Post reported that only 13% of evangelicals tithe. Uh, Now, I'm sure that, again, we fare better than those statistics, as I think most NAPARC churches do. Most Reformed churches, uh, people have more of a conviction about tithing. And uh, since our congregations tend to be smaller, we we all have that sense that, okay, I need to support my church. I need to give. My dollars count. But in general, this is an issue that, as Christians, we need to continue to reevaluate. And this is an issue that Uh, the church, again, the church in general, continues to face, which is why the Holy Spirit prompted Paul to write this here. And and yes, people can find themselves in dire straits. People can find themselves in financial difficulties, which I think, uh, regardless of what our personal conviction is with tithing and how absolute that command is, uh, we can be sympathetic to that. But I think that often in the church in America... Uh, We fail to give as Christians uh, simply out of a lack of commitment and out of a desire to spend our money on other things, right? It's very similar to why we are attracted to recreations on the Sabbath. We are in a consumeristic society. And so this shows that very often what's going on is, again, corporately as the church in America, we devalue the ordinary preaching of the gospel and the ordinary ministry of the gospel. And that's shown by, again, a lack of giving. After all, money is what? It's an instrument of value, isn't it? We put our money towards things that are valuable. And in a society that's based around, again, consumption, recreations, and material enjoyment, it can be hard to part with our well-earned money right, and all the things that we want to do with it. And yet from the Old Testament laws around tithing and and sacrifice to the New Testament command to give to the church and to the poor, uh, we're continually reminded that even if we earn our money fair and square, it doesn't ultimately belong to us, does it? It belongs to God. And you see, we are to demonstrate that reality and confess that reality in a sense by being cheerful givers. In fact, part of why God has blessed you with work and with income is so that you might support the ministry of the church. 
And as we see here, when we give to the church, it's actually to our benefit because in the church, we find orthodox teaching, orthodox doctrine. We find the words of eternal life each week. It's where we find the truth of the Gospel. It's where we are refreshed each Lord's Day. It's where our kids are catechized. It's where our families are nourished and grounded in the truths of Scripture. And so you see, it's part of this section of Galatians where he's encouraging the church to love one another and live together in a way that reflects that love. It's an act of love to provide for the church in this way because as the family of God, we all share in the good things of the Word of God together. And Lord willing, more and more will come to share in those things as the church continues to flourish. And so we have... Uh, the high privilege of participating in that forward move of the gospel through our giving. And so again, we should all commit to stay faithful to our membership vows, to give to the Lord's work as He shall prosper us. We should prayerfully consider um, if our giving is adequate. And we should join our giving with prayers, prayers that God would use this money for the furtherance of His kingdom and of the gospel. And again, remember that this text also encourages you to share in all good things with the one who teaches you. Uh, One thing that we can all continue to do, if we aren't doing it, is to pray for our pastor and pray for our elders each week. That the Lord would give them strength. That the Lord would give them wisdom for the weighty matters that they are called to. And remember to give encouragement as well. Remember, what Paul is saying here is about valuing the preaching ministry of the church. And there's many ways that we can do that. Many ways that we can do that. So let's keep that in mind. So according to Paul, we are to offer support to the ministry of the church, especially in um, supporting the ministry of the church in various ways. However, he also then calls us secondly to bear spiritual fruit towards one another as the body of Christ. And we, f- we find that there in verses 7 through 10. Uh, there Paul goes on and he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So once again here, we see that Paul addresses this conflict that exists between the spirit and between the flesh. Now remember... Uh, Back in chapter 5, we saw uh, that the flesh, when we looked at that in chapter 5, the flesh is not so much a reference to our physical body, uh, though that is in view. Uh, The flesh is rather more a reference to our sinful nature. It's a reference uh, to the part of us that seeks our own autonomy and that seeks to live out of our own strength and out of our own autonomy in conflict with the reality of God and His law. 
And as we considered back in chapter 5, apart from the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit, all of us are nothing but flesh. And we act out of the deeds of the flesh. And so likewise, as we saw, uh, when Paul refers to the Spirit there, uh, this is not a reference so much to the human spirit or to the soul. Instead, it's a reference to the work of the Holy Spirit within us. Uh, When we were converted, uh, the Holy Spirit regenerated our nature so that we began to hate and flee from the works of the flesh while also desiring reconciliation with God through the Gospel of Christ, through the finished work of Christ. And so the work of the Spirit within us, He leads us to, to faith and to repentance and to a desire for new obedience. And remember, as we saw, because these two principles are now at work within us, all of us here this morning, if we are believers, we all have a war going on within us. As Paul said in chapter 5, the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. And so as Paul is now instructing us, again, in how to live together as a community of sinners saved by grace in this way, he's really emphasizing the corporate dimension of this reality. That is, he's emphasizing the fact that we are to bear the fruit of the Spirit towards one another while also crucifying the works of the flesh in how we deal with one another as a community. Look at what he says there in verse 8. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Now, when Paul refers here to sowing to the flesh and to sowing to the Spirit, uh, what this is, it's a a reference to indulging in or to putting into practice those things that are conducive to either the flesh or the Spirit. So what does this mean? How can we act in a way that is conducive to either the flesh or the Spirit? Well, just think about the works of the flesh for a moment. Remember back in chapter 5 in verses 19 through 21, uh, Paul wrote there, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. So all of those comprise what Paul calls the works of the flesh. And notice that most of those actions that are described there involve other people. In other words, there's a corporate dimension to the works of the flesh. And so to sow to the works of the flesh is to indulge in or be conducive towards adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, 
drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Again, we can do this in our own personal lives, but we can also do this in relation to one another. We can provoke one another and put stumbling blocks before one another that provoke one another to things like anger and to things like lust and to things like idolatry. But so likewise, on the other hand, to sow to the Spirit is to engage in thoughts, words, and deeds that are conducive to the Spirit's work within us, especially as it's manifested in the fruit of the Spirit. Remember, Paul says in chapter 5 and verse 22 that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And each of these characteristics there of the fruit of the Spirit has a personal as well as a corporate dimension to it. In fact, as we saw a couple months back, the majority of what Paul lists as the fruit of the Spirit is corporate in nature, isn't it? Love, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness all have to do with how we live with other people, especially with other Christians, doesn't it? And so Paul admonishes the Galatian Christians here to sow to the Spirit so that they might bear the fruit of the Spirit together as the church, and they are to do so while crucifying the works of the flesh in their midst. And notice the strong language that he uses in this admonition and in introducing this concept to us. In verse 7 he says, uh, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. This is Paul's way of basically saying, don't kid yourself. God knows what you're doing. And soon enough, everyone else will know if you don't stop. In other words, what is done in secret or what is done undercover will be made manifest in the life of the body and there will be consequences for it. So we need to all... Uh, collectively and, and then individually examine ourselves and be honest with ourselves about what it is that we are doing. And then again, he, he goes on to give them th- th- this practical instruction and illustration for how it is that they are to rectify the situation with this illustration of sowing and reaping that we just considered. And brothers and sisters, just as Christians in general, this this is something that we need to give heed to. Again, both in our personal lives as well as in our life together as the church. Uh, The fact that we reap what we sow. Uh, So when it comes to our own personal life, uh, we can't be complaining when we sow nothing but corn that we aren't reaping any wheat. And so likewise, uh, we, we can't only sow wheat and then complain when we don't have any corn. Uh, For example, you can't listen to angry music, watch angry political talking heads all the time, and engage in gossip and negativity, and then wonder why you're angry all the time. So also, you can't neglect the Word of God in prayer while engaging in endless social media scrolling, and then wonder why you struggle with things like idolatry and materialism and lust. 
You see, this is very practical advice here. You reap what you sow into your life. It's pretty common sense, right? But you see, the same goes with our corporate life together as a body as well. Christians can't distance themselves from one another and gossip about one another and not encourage one another and then wonder why they are lacking in love, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and, and gentleness. So also, we can't entertain heresies and legalism and then wonder why we can't gra- grasp the gospel anymore and why we are lacking the, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. We can't be given to a self-righteous spirit and wonder why we are hypercritical and lacking in inner peace and inner joy. So also, we can't adopt an antinomian spirit and then wonder why we aren't being uplifted with edifying, Christ-honoring, God-exalting conversations in our interactions with one another. As Paul says here, For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And so his admonition here is meant to motivate us to change up how we are living, to examine ourselves continuously. We need to always be doing that as Christians. And to continually reevaluate and change up how we are living. And the implication is that it will change the nature and quality of our lives as individuals and as the church. And note, this doesn't here contradict the gospel of free grace. Uh, Because you see, Paul is addressing matters of sanctification here. And you see the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is freely given to all of you in order to sanctify you and preserve you in the grace that you've received. And so what he's saying is that we need to sow to the Spirit, who is already at work within us, in order to reap the benefits of His work there. The the, the potentiality of His work there. We need to sow to the Spirit to reap those benefits, again, both as individuals and as a body. As we sang in Psalm 46, a river brings refreshing streams to cheer the city of our God. And in Christ, we have those refreshing streams. We need to drink from it. And so Paul ends by encouraging us in that. In verses 9 and 10, he says, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So there you see that Paul encourages us to persevere in doing good by the Spirit, or to persevere in sowing to the Spirit, because we are promised a reward. We were promised future rewards if we walk in step with the Spirit. He says, let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. And Paul here seems to imply that there are benefits both in this life and in the life to come if we do this. That is, if we sow to the Spirit while mortifying the works of the flesh. Uh, Now, that first part, uh, the idea of reaping benefits in this present life, uh, certainly fits in with the context of this passage, doesn't it? 
The whole sense of what Paul is saying here seems to be speaking of our quality of life as a body right now. And I think that every human being uh, can agree that if we all did good towards one another, that this life would be much more pleasant to live, wouldn't it? Just in general, not even talking about the church. If we all did good towards one another, as Paul says, our lives would be much more conducive to things like love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If we went out of our way to bless one another and, and to consider others before ourselves, right? That would animate us. We would see the fruit of the Spirit manifesting corporately if we did that more. So Paul is certainly speaking of rewards and benefits that we can experience in this life by following this course. And yet he also says there that if we uh, sow to the Spirit, that we will also, by implication, receive rewards and benefits in eternity. We see that in verse 8, again, where he specifically promises the reward of eternal life if we sow to the Spirit. Uh, So also the whole idea that we need to persevere in these good works throughout this life implies that there's an eternal reward coming and that we are aiming for in this, a reward that we will receive upon entering into the next life. Uh, Now, once again, when Paul says this, uh, that we need to walk in the Spirit and do good in order to receive eternal rewards, again, we have to recognize that this does not contradict the great doctrine of justification by faith alone. Paul is not saying that we will be justified in eternity or made right with God in eternity if we sow to the Spirit. No, he's simply saying that we will reap the benefits of eternal life if we sow to the Spirit right now. Okay, but you still ask, um, isn't eternal life a free gift and not something that's earned by what I do? Well, yes, it is. But... As Paul has made it clear throughout this epistle, and as he does even in the book of Romans, the Holy Spirit is also a free gift that has been given to you in Christ Jesus through his finished work. Jesus Christ, as God in the flesh, has fulfilled the terms of the covenant of works for you in your place if you believe. And so when you enter into Him by faith, you enter into the reward that He's earned for you. You enter into eternal life and the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And so what Paul is doing here is he's encouraging us to stop feeding into the works of the flesh and to live in light of our identity in Christ. We are to live as those who have been justified and sanctified and as those who will one day be glorified in the life of the Spirit. And yes, he's saying that we can partake in that reality right now and reap and enjoy the benefits of it right now as we bear the fruit of the Spirit in our personal lives and towards one another. But so also, that same fruit that we enjoy right now will go on to be enhanced in an eternal and unchanging way in the next life. Sowing now also causes us to reap later. And so why then would we live for the works of the flesh? 
which only ever reaps corruption in this life and which will never follow us into the life to come. You see, one day we will never indulge in the works of the flesh again, nor will we want to. So again, why not live in light of what will be true for us for all eternity right now? To live with that eternal perspective and that eternal reward in mind and start enjoying it now. And as Paul says in verse 10, these good works that he speaks of that are tied to the fruit of the Spirit and the flow of the passage, they are to especially be exercised towards the household or towards the family of God. And that makes sense that if we are going to spend eternity together, that we may as well start living or learning to live together right now well and in a way that is pleasing to God. And that same spirit uh, also needs to be reflected towards all men, as Paul says, as a testimony to them. Again, he says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of God. Again, this is an area where we all need to grow. Our sanctification is incomplete. I know I need to grow in these things. We need to bear the fruit of the Spirit towards our family, towards our friends, towards our neighbors, and especially towards one another in the church because we are one household together in Christ. Thinking of the communion that we partook in a couple weeks ago. Think of what Paul says. We take from one loaf because we are one body together. We are one household. It's why we invest in the household as we considered in the first point. But it's also why we invest in one another and seek to promote and cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in one another. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we thank you for calling us together as your people as a body of believers who have been bought by the precious blood of the Lamb, who have been ordained to eternal life and to life in the Spirit. We thank you that you have brought us together to live together as the church. We thank you for forming this body and forming us together as a, as a household. Lord, we thank you for all the fruit that has been born by your Spirit in our midst. We pray that that would continue to grow and and continue to be enhanced just as we look forward to it in all eternity. Help each one of us, O Lord, to think about how we might uh, give and support the church, to think about how we can encourage uh, those who are over us and encourage one another. Help us each to think about how we might uproot sin in our own lives, and Lord, grow in conformity to you. We pray that your Spirit would be at work within us, that we might bear that fruit of the Spirit you call us to, uh, not only as individuals, but also as a body together. We pray that we would be characterized by the, the life of your Spirit. Lord, we pray you'd work these things within us, We ask all of these things in the name of your Son. Amen.